And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Yeah, how marvelous is God's love for me? That's what we're looking at this this morning, uh, is God's amazing love. In 1861, a uh, gambler and a, a drinker named Harry Morehouse, he rushed into a revival meeting in Manchester, England, and he, he intended to get in a fight. Instead, he got saved. Six years later, the evangelist D.L. Moody uh, was preaching in Dublin when Morehouse uh, came up and told Moody that he would like to come to America and preach the gospel. Now, Moody guessed that Morehouse was about 17. And when I looked at pictures of Morehouse and drawings and what have you, yeah, he did look young. He was actually 27. And he didn't know if Morehouse could even preach, so he just kind of brushed him off. But after Moody got back to Chicago, he got a letter from Morehouse saying that he was coming to America and he would like to come and preach. And Moody wrote a kind of cold reply saying, well, if you do come west, you can call on me. And it was just a few days later, Moody got another letter saying that Morehouse would be in Chicago the next Thursday. And Moody didn't knew, know what to do with him. So he told his deacons, hey, there's this Englishman that wants to come and preach, and I'm going to be gone Thursday and Friday. If you let him preach those days, I'll come back Saturday and, and take him off of your hands. Well, sure enough, on Saturday, Moody returned, and he asked his wife how the young Englishman got along, uh, and did the people like him, and she said, yes, they liked him very much. Well, how about you? Did you like him? Yes, she said, very much. He preached two sermons from John 3.16. I think you'll like him too, but he preaches a little different than you do. Well, how is that, Moody asked, and well, he tells sinners that God loves them. <laughs> well, Moody said, he's wrong. So Moody went to hear him that night and determined that he was not going to like him, right? You have, have you ever done that, gone to something, invited, and you're like, oh, I'm going to hate this or I'm not going to like them, whatever. But that first night, as Morehouse preached again from John 3.16 on God's great love for sinners, Moody's heart began to thaw out. And shortly, he could not hold back the tears. Now, for seven nights in a row, Morehouse preached to a crowded church on John 3.16. The final night, Morehouse concluded his sermon by saying, My friends, for a whole week I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you, but I cannot do it with this poor, stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much love the Father has for the world, he could only... What he could only say would be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now those sermons, they changed Moody's life. He said, I have never forgotten those nights. I have preached a different gospel since and, it had, and have had more power with God and man since then. Just the simple gospel of John 3.16. Well, Romans 5.8, which is in our passage today, that's the Apostle Paul's version of John 3.16. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Paul wants to know and experience even more deeply the, the truth of verse 5, that the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. In verses 6 through 8 this morning, Paul is explaining further this life-changing truth of God great, God's great love for sinners. 
Now, in doing so, he's showing why our hope of heaven will not disappoint us. And now, as we saw in our study a couple weeks ago, it's a continuation of the blessings of being justified by faith. That's what chapter 4 is about. And then chapter 5 begins, therefore, having been justified by faith, and he starts lifting, listing off these blessings. They include peace with God, access into God's grace, hope of the glory of God, and joy in our trials, knowing that God is using them to develop perseverance, uh, character, and hope. And the thing that kind of anchors our hope is this abundant outpouring of God's Spirit into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So now Paul shows us why God's love is a sure thing, and thus our hope of heaven is sure. Our major thought this morning is our hope of heaven is secure because it is based on God's love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Amazing. Let's pray. Father, we pray for uh, just the Holy Spirit this morning to be here to open our eyes to see this marvelous, uh, wonderful, incomprehensible truth that, Father, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So, God, I pray that you would uh, just emblazon that on our hearts, Father, to the point that it would change our lives, just as it did D.L. Moody uh, 175 years ago. Lord, speak to us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in other words, God's amazing love is not based on us getting our act together to deserve it. It's not based on our track record of performance uh, to guarantee its continued flow. Rather, God's love is based on the fact that God is love. <laughs> he is gracious. He extends His love and His grace to sinners apart from and even in spite of anything in them. Now, this means, number one, our hope of heaven is secure because it's not based on anything good in us. Paul emphasizes this in our, in our text with a series of synonyms. He says we were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Now, before we look at these terms, I want you to note something. A, to appreciate God's great love, we must feel our own great need for the Savior. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he notes, in order to measure the love of God, you have to first go down before you can go up. You don't start at the level and then go up. Uh, we have to be brought up from a dungeon, from a horrible pit. And unless you know something of the measure of that depth, you will only be measuring half of the love of God, end quote. Now, this is illustrated for us uh, incredibly by Jesus in Luke 7. He's going to dine at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Now, picture the scene. You, you have this very religious man. He took great pride in his religious observance. Uh, he never ate unclean food. He tithed meticulously. He obeyed the, the, uh, the, the Mosaic law. He kept his distance from notorious sinners. He wanted to find out if this upstart, uneducated rabbi from Galilee named Jesus, if he was legitimate or not. Now, as they reclined at dinner, back in those days, they lay down when they ate. Okay, maybe we ought to try that. A woman who was known to be a prostitute came in, and she had an alabaster vial uh, that was full of perfume. Standing at Jesus' feet, weeping, she wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and anointed his feet with the perfume. And Jesus seemed to be pleased with her. 
Simon, the Pharisee, he was aghast. So he was thinking, if this man were a prophet, talking about Jesus, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus knew what he was thinking. So he told him his story. He said, Simon, this lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50, but neither one could pay, so he forgave both of their debts. Which do you think would love him more? And Simon replies, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, correct. Then he drew the lesson. This sinful woman who had been forgiven much loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little now, his point was not that Simon had little to be forgiven of. I mean, Simon had not even shown Jesus common hospitality. He was rude. He was arrogant. Rather, the point was that Simon did not realize how much he needed uh, the love of Jesus uh, or needed God's forgiveness. And so he didn't love Jesus as much as this woman who knew her great need for the Savior. Now, if, like me, you grew up in a Christian home, you never got into much trouble growing up, you're going to be prone to be more like Simon than the prostitute. And if you want to know and experience the great love of God in Christ, then you have to see more of the awful depth of sin that actually lurks within your own heart. Again, to cite Jones, he says, it is to the extent to which we realize our inability and incapacity that we realize the love of of God. Now, Paul shows us our inability in these verses. And that brings us to B. We greatly need the Savior because we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. So, number one, we were weak. Now, the NASB translates as helpless, the NIV translates it as powerless. And I think that's closer to what uh, Paul is trying to communicate here. Weak in this context means incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. God, it says that it means total incapacity for good, the want of all moral life such as is healthy and fruitful in good works. Lloyd-Jones, he says it a little simpler. He says total inability in a spiritual sense. But so that you will see that these men are not just making this up, let's see what the Bible says about our weak spiritual condition outside of Christ. Well, to begin with, we were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. You see, we needed God to raise us from the dead. Plus, we were not, not able to save ourselves. Jesus told the religious Nicodemus back there in John 3 that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was about as religious as you could get, but all that religion could not get him into the kingdom of God. He needed the new birth. And just as we could not produce our natural birth by our own efforts or willpower, so it is spiritually. It must be an act of God. You cannot save yourself. Plus, we were not able to see the light of the gospel to be saved. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Plus, we were not able to understand spiritual truth. 
Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians of chapter 2, verse 14. He says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Plus, we were not able to hear God's truth. In John 8, 43, Jesus asked the Jews who were challenging him, Why do you not understand what I am saying? Well, he answered his own question. He says, it is because you cannot hear my word. Not will not, cannot. They lacked spiritual ears to hear. Plus, we were not seeking God. Now, we saw this back in Paul's indictment of humanity in Romans 3.11 where he says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Plus, we were not able to submit to God's law or to please Him. We're going to see this, I don't know when, the Lord knows, in Romans 8, uh, verses 7 and 8. Paul states, The mind on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when Paul says that we were still weak, <laughs> he mean, means that we were totally unable and unwilling to do anything to bring about uh, reconciliation with God. But he doesn't stop there. Number two, we were ungodly. This is verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. This is nothing new. We saw this in chapter 4 as well. The wor uh, this word takes us back actually all the way to the indictment of the whole human race in chapter 1 verse 18 where he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress that truth in unrighteousness. To be ungodly is to be unlike God, who is holy, who is apart from sin. It means that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts, they're not our thoughts. Humanly speaking, there is an uncrossable chasm between us and God. Well, number three, we were sinners. That's what Paul says in verse 8, "...while we were yet sinners." We saw back in uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's the essence of sin, to fall short of God's glory. We didn't live for His glory. We had no concern for His glory. Rather, we lived for ourselves and our own glory. We were sinners. Well, number four, we were God's enemies. Now here, I'm drawing on verse 10, which, Lord willing, will be next week, where Paul describes our past as being God's enemies. We were hostile toward Him, alienated from Him, and opposed to His Lordship over our lives. Now, now, maybe you're thinking, this is awfully depressing to think about this is who we really are. It tears down my self-esteem. Uh, it doesn't help me to feel good about myself. But if you don't see the depth of sin from which God saved you, you won't appreciate His great love. Christ didn't come to help you polish up your self-esteem self or to help you feel good about yourself. Christ came to die for your sins in order to reconcile you to God. If you do not see yourself as a weak, ungodly sinner at enmity with God, then you won't see your need for the Savior. And you'll never have assurance about your hope of heaven because you'll base your hope on your own goodness or merit. But our, our hope of heaven can only be secure if it's not based on anything good in us. 
Well, major point number two here, our hope of heaven is secure because it's based on God's gracious love for us while we were yet sinners. And Paul says that in verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the word show there, it means to demonstrate, to prove, to establish, to render conspicuous. Note a few things here briefly. A, God's gracious love took the initiative to save us uh, from our weak, ungodly condition. These verses show, show that salvation is totally from God, totally from His great love. There was nothing in us that was lovable or that motivated God to send the Savior. In Ezekiel 16, uh, God pictures Israel this way, and it's, it's a picture of us as well. Uh, we were like an unwanted newborn infant, thrown out into the field, squirming in our blood, a piece of garbage about to die. If you don't believe me, read the first part of Ezekiel 16. But God, He took us, He bathed us with water, He anointed us with oil, He wrapped us in fine garments. Salvation stems from His great love. Well, B, God's gracious love for us, it's far higher than any example of human love. Uh, this is Paul's point in verse 7. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good, for a good person one would even dare to die. Now, Paul makes an initial statement uh, regarding the love of man in general and then qualifies it. Rarely would someone die for a righteous man, but some might die for a good person. But who would offer to die for a scoundrel who deserves to die? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. In fact, He died for only one type of person, ungodly sinners. None of us deserved what Jesus in love did for us. We'll see God's gracious love for us sent none other than Christ. Who is the one whom the Father sent to die for our sins? It was His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. He was the eternal one who was with God and who was, who was God and who created all things. He is the one who is the, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, who of all, upholds all things by the power of His Word. Paul says that God shows His love for us in that Christ died for us. But doesn't that demonstrate Christ's life, uh, love for us, the fact that He would die? Well, yes, it certainly does show the love of Christ. Leon Morris observes, unless there is a sense in which the Father and Christ are one, it is not the love of God that the cross shows. But because Christ is one with God, Paul can speak of the cross as a demonstration of the love of God. End quote. On the cross, cross uh, Christ didn't die to persuade the angry God of the Old Testament to love us as some mistakenly have pictured it. The Father and the Son, they were one in their love that devised the plan of salvation for guilty sinners. Now, the fact that it required the death of the eternal Son of, Son of God, that should cause us to bow in love and wonder and worship. Well, D, God's gracious love sent Christ at the right time. Leon Morris explains this phrase. He says, two ways of looking at the time of Christ's death are combined here. He, di he died at a time when we were still sinners and at a time that fitted God's purpose. Uh, 
The second way emphasizes that the atonement was no afterthought. This was the way God always intended to deal with sin. He did it when He chose, end quote. So in the grand scheme of the ages, Christ's death, it was right on schedule. Paul talks about this in Galatians 4.4. He says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. But on a personal level, He died for us at the right time in that we were perishing. We had no hope. We would have been doomed if God had not sent the Savior you must come to the end of trusting yourself and your good works so that you see uh, your hopeless, helpless condition. Spurgeon puts it this way, you've got to stand before God convicted and condemned with the rope around your neck so that you will weep for joy when God at the right time sends Christ into your life as your Savior. Well, E, God's gracious love sent Christ to die for us. Now, the word die, it's pretty prominent here. It's in verse 6, it's twice in verse 7, and once again in verse 8. Since the wages of sin is death, Christ had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. He was our substitute, bearing the punishment that we deserved. He died as the just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. That's how Peter says it. While Jesus is our great example of how to live, His example did not save us. While He is our great teacher, His teaching did not save us. Only His death as our substitute bore that awful penalty of God's wrath. Jesus alone can save us, and He does it through His death. Twice, Paul says, Christ died for the ungodly, and while we were yet sins, Christ died for us. The bottom line is here, number three, if we were weak, ungodly sinners in need of Christ's death to save us, then salvation cannot in any sense be due to human merit, works, or righteousness. These verses, they do away with all works-based righteousness. We were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies with God. Christ didn't come to help us save ourselves. He didn't come to die because He saw a spark of potential in us. As Charles Hodge put it, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. Now this is tremendously good news. It means that our hope of heaven is secure because it doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, it is in spite of us. It has everything to do with God's gracious love for us while we were still sinners. Now, if you're not saved, uh, it's because you have not received the free gift that God offers. Maybe you're still trying to earn your way into heaven. But as heaven, if heaven is based on your works, you'll never be sure of it because you can never know that you've done enough. Trust instead in God's loving gift of eternal life through Jesus, who died for us while we were still sinners. Any of y'all ever heard of Karl Barth? He was a Swiss theologian, um, and this was, uh, I guess, the middle of last century, and he came to visit the United States, and at a Q&A session, someone asked him, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind? 
Now, the questioner probably expected some deep, incomprehensible answer, as if somebody had asked Einstein to explain his theory of, uh, theory of relativity. Bart, Bart thought for a, uh, a minute, and then he replied, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, Bart was off on some of his theology, but he was right on with that answer. The Apostle Paul this morning wants us not only to know intellectually, but to feel experientially the great love of God as seen in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, what a great thing to consider uh, that salvation requires uh, the giving of your son, Jesus. And at the right time, he came. Father, at the right time, he died. Uh, God, I pray that if there's anybody in here this morning that doesn't know you through your son, Lord Jesus, that you would open their eyes, that they would see Jesus, maybe for the first time, for who he really is, the Savior, and what he did to accomplish that salvation on our behalf. God, I pray that you do that work in our hearts and we'll give you praise and glory for it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this sermon really is uh, pointed towards the lost. Uh, if you're sitting out there and you don't know, uh, you know, whether if you died right now, would you go to heaven? Okay, uh, I'll talk about this next week, I think. That, that's kind of question one. How, how many have ever heard of EE, Evangelism Explosion? G, uh, James, uh, D. James Kennedy from Coral Ridge Presbyterian many years ago wrote this. First question is, if you were to die right now, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Question number two, okay, you're up in heaven, and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? In other words, what is the basis of your salvation? Paul has been telling us all along it has nothing to do with us. It has only to do with Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross in our stead. He did what we could never do, and he paid a debt that we could never repay. This morning, if you do not know Jesus and, and, and his Father, I encourage you to turn from your sin. That's what we call repentance. All right, Place your trust in Jesus. We're kind of hardwired here in the West to take care of ourselves, to pull ourselves up by our, our bootstraps, and to be independent. Listen, there is no independence in salvation. It is total dependence on Christ. Set aside anything that you think that you might bring to Him that would recommend you to, to God. No, you come empty-handed. You come as a sinner. You come like that publican in Luke 18 who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, He went home justified, right with God that day. Maybe you need to do that today. I encourage you to do it. If you're a believer, I hope that you understand the depth of what God saved you. Sometimes we tend to say, well, I don't have much of a testimony. Uh, I've been a good person all my life. I've never been in trouble, never been arrested. I don't drink. I, you know, I don't have all these vices. It doesn't matter. Do you understand it takes resurrection power to take you from the kingdom of darkness and deliver you into the uh, domain of darkness and deliver you into the kingdom of light? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised you from the dead. Remember, that's the first thing we looked at. You were dead in your sins. If you're in alive in Christ, I hope you understand and love God because you were a sinner when He saved you. He was, you were a sinner. 
Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.